James would not be considered politically correct in this day and age. He's actually been telling people that they have false faith, that they follow false religion. Last week, his point was basically this. False religion doesn't work. It may hear the word of God, but it hears it, walks away, doesn't help, doesn't have anything to do with people at all. And James teaches that you can, one of the marks of fault, several marks of false religion is, again, you don't care about other people. You don't want to serve other people. You want to be served. Uh, you might talk a good game. And a friend one time who told me he was a younger man, much younger man than me, said, my generation likes to go to Starbucks and talk about what the church should do, but we don't want to do anything about what the church should do. And also, uh, false religion may attend church. And let's remember that that's who James appears to be writing to. While often the Apostle Paul seems to be writing to people who know nothing about God, people from the Roman Empire who worship false God, James is talking to church people and people who may attend services and say they believe in God, but Jesus is not their king. Jesus is not their savior. Jesus is not their Lord. In fact, they're not even so sure they need a savior and they need a Lord. Because religion is so off, we've said before that not many followers of Jesus even use the term, uh, nor does the Bible, but apparently James is writing to people who do use the term. True religion knows God. True religion seeks to know God more deeply, hear his voice, and see his face, and an outgrowth of that is loving people. True religion is the result of being what Jesus called born again. Now, I know a lot of people think born again, oh my gosh, those are those spiritual jihadists that were at Times Square. If, it's, if you're not from New York, it's uh, around here. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, wearing sandwich boards, yelling at people to repent. But that's actually a term that Jesus used, which means to be, be made spiritually alive. Ephesians chapter 2 teaches that we are born spiritually dead, and the Holy Spirit makes us spiritually alive by grace through faith. Last week, we talked about when faith isn't working, and we saw what faith was not. This week, the title of our message is Faith That Does Work, and we're going to see what faith looks like. So we looked uh, briefly, and we left off at verse 20 last week, and so let's go back to it. It sort of uh, concludes and looks ahead, and it says this, But do you want to know... Now, some versions say, uh, do you want to be shown? Do you want to learn? Do you want evidence? So answer that question. Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know about this stuff? Do you want to be shown? Do you want, do you want to learn? Do you want evidence? But do you want to know, oh foolish man, you're like, who is this guy to call me a foolish man? That faith without works is dead. Some versions say faith without works is useless. We call works maybe good deeds. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, puts it this way. 
For my dear short-sighted man, can't you see far enough to realize that faith without the right actions is dead and useless? Well, now, when it comes to religion, uh, people who even claim to be Christian are often unwilling to be convinced by the facts. <laughs> I've talked to people that said, I'm Christian, but I don't believe the Bible. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you, I'm Christian, but I don't think I should do everything that Jesus says. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so you're telling me that you follow a faith where the leader claimed to be God, and even secular historians will tell you we're, we're pretty close in having the accuracy of the words that he said, that they, doubt, they may doubt that he is God become a man, but you don't really believe what he says. They're like, yeah, that's kind of exactly right. Now, we might think it's odd and just really rude that James would call them foolish, but this is something we have to remember. We call this the Word of God, which the Scripture tells us, Peter tells us, that men were moved by the Holy Spirit as they were writing. So we have to remember sometimes some of the bluntness of the Word of God, God allowed in there. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 James, stop writing that. No, he, he allowed it in there. Now, is James speaking to a specific person? He could be. When we get to chapter 3, maybe we'll investigate that a little bit. Is he speaking to anyone who would say they would believe in God yet not listen to him? Without a doubt. That we can, we can definitely be sure of. So what does he mean foolish? Does he mean stupid? Well, foolish really in the Bible really kind of, kind of means deficient in understanding or someone who is in great moral error. It could also mean that someone is kind of empty on the inside or, or they're an intellectually short-sighted or we might say an intellectual failure. The person that James is talking to here is stubborn. They are hard-hearted. They know more than God himself. Yes, they go to church, but they're very hard to convince of what God himself says. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're watching. You may be kind of confused in this, but in a way you get a sense of relief. It's very rare to talk to someone who was raised in the church, who now is no longer part of the church, who won't tell you a big part of the reason they don't believe in the church and Christianity is people who were bad examples to them. I just say to them, well, they probably were false converts or not even claiming to be converts at all. And so there's, he's, is, he's, he's speaking here, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, he's asking you a question. Do you really want to know the truth? If you're a religious person, you really have not embraced Christianity. I mean, you don't, you don't really give God much of a second thought. You don't give Christ much of a second thought out of the, the Sunday, few Sundays a year you might attend church. You may attend it every day, but you really don't think much about him. You're really not focused about him. Do you really want to know the truth? Are you really willing to face the fact that James says your faith is useless or your faith might be useless. 
Now, there's a play on words here. It sort of goes something like this, that faith without works does not work, does not compute, doesn't seem to happen. It can't save you. It's absolutely impossible. Now, Americans are fond of saying, well, I don't judge. I, I, don't, I don't judge. You know, you see these polls. Do you believe this is wrong? Yes, we believe this is wrong. Do you vote the candidate who th- for the candidate who thinks it's right? A lot of times overwhelmingly. Why? I don't judge. The Bible says not to judge. No, the Bible says we are to judge. We are to judge. You judge every day. Let me ask you a question. If somebody gave you a night in a hotel and it was 20 degrees out and they said you could stay at the most expensive hotel in the United States of America in the penthouse or you could sleep in a tent in the park, which would you pick? You say, I'd pick the penthouse. You just made a judgment. We make judgments all the time. I say to young people, they say, um, I don't believe we should judge. I go, okay, quick, Burger King or McDonald's? They always go, uh, uh, uh. they have the answer right away. They, have the, they go, Taco Bell. They have the answer right away. See, we make judgments all the time. We're supposed to judge with a right judgment, not as the Pharisees or the religious leaders judge. Now, to be judgmental is wrong. To be constantly judging the motives of people is wrong. But there are sometimes there are things that we look at and they're, they're factual. And so we're, we're fond of saying we don't judge. Let me just tell you this about the Bible. The Word of God is not so unloving. Because sometimes the Word of God oftentimes will point out to us things that we must be judged on. The Word of God regularly shakes us. If you don't read the Word of God, and it doesn't sometimes shake you, something's wrong. This morning I read half of the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 6 is, uh, we'll go back to some California lingo, is a very gnarly chapter. It's really, really tough sledding in Hebrews chapter 6. In fact, I read it twice. I've taught Hebrews, but I want to just read through it twice. And you know what? It shook me. I was like, ugh. And, and, so, and so the Bible really is meant to shake us out of our, you know, just laziness and our sleepiness to show us that we may not actually be children of God. That we may not actually be what the scriptures call saved, have our sins forgiven, and have eternal life with God. The Bible may actually shake us so much that it gets us to come to the Savior. But if we think everything is fine, why do we need a Savior? But some of you are protesting right now, if you're still with me. For some of you are like, I'm going to flick this guy off right now. He better hurry up. My show comes on at 8 o'clock tonight, and, uh, and he better hurry up and talk because I believe in God. Remember last week what James told us? That's great. Good for you. The demons believe in God, too. How many of you expect to see the demons in heaven? No, you don't. And so you can say you believe in God, but doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. And that's what James is talking to about. You might say, okay, James, you're going to have to show me. So he gives us an example. He actually calls two people to testify who lived a long time ago. So let's go back 2,000 years before James to 
Abraham, who we're studying on Sunday morning, was, verse 21, was not Abraham our father, probably an indicator to us that he is writing, again, we saw at the beginning in chapter 1, to a Jewish audience that had become followers of Jesus or claimed to be followers of Jesus, was not Abraham our father justified by works, uh, some versions say considered righteous, when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. We haven't gotten to that in our Sunday studies. We will in, in a matter of week, well, probably a couple months with the holidays coming up. But we're supposed to go, yes. We're supposed to say yes. Verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works? Another version says, uh, do, do you see that faith was active along with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. Some versions say complete. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or credited to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Another version says he was called God's friend. So, James does not want to give any of us any wiggle room here. Absolutely none. I mean, he goes for it. And he calls Abraham to testify. And he says, you know, Abraham, Father Abraham, he proves the point that I am making. And he takes us to Genesis 22. Remember, he quoted Genesis 15, 6, very important, which came much sooner than Genesis 22. We're going to see in our Sunday studies. It's a large amount of years that pass by. And in Genesis 22, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son, the miracle child who they had waited so long for. And then at the very last second, God called it off. It was a test of Abraham's faith. Now, for, for a Jew, this would be considered Abraham's greatest act of faith, while these verses that I just read caused the greatest debate among Bible scholars. The debate is, is James saying that Abraham's works or his deeds is what caused him to be justified by God? That's the question, that's the debate. Is James saying that Abraham's works, that his deeds, is what caused him to be justified by God? Now, right now, some of you are turning to the book of Romans going, he's absolutely wrong. He's absolutely wrong. Now, the reason Bible scholars get in a knot about this kind of stuff is the Apostle Paul's use of the word justify. Now, justify, you ready for a fancy biblical word? Justify uh, is the word that he uses as the basis of his soteriology. You're like, oh no, what in the world does that mean? Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. And justify or justification in the Apostle Paul's writing is huge. He uses that word justify when he talks about the initial verdict of 
innocent for those who turn to God and put their trust in Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, those who repent and believe. But James is using the word differently. Remember, we said that James took a lot of his teaching from the Old Testament and from Jesus, not the revelation of God given to the Apostle Paul, although the two had met and he was probably aware of some of the things that the Apostle Paul was teaching. So how do we keep it simple? The way we keep it simple is we realize Different audiences, the Apostle Paul often talking to Gentile pagans who did not know anything about Yahweh. Remember, I, I had a friend who went on a missions trip to Cuba, and I've talked to the people who've done this in China, too, in certain areas, and they go to people and they go, do you know much about God? And they're like, what's God? Do you know anything about Jesus? Who's Jesus? The Apostle Paul ministered to a lot of people like that. A lot of people he had to explain to them how the initial verdict of innocent comes about before God that you have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. But James is talking to a different audience. He's using the words differently. He's talking to, if you will, church people. Again, so how do we keep it simple? The Apostle Paul is talking about initial salvation. James is talking about final salvation. Now you say, what, are, they, are they different? Yes. He points out that because Abraham was willing to act upon his faith, he was not a false convert. Now this is something we really don't talk about in America anymore, and I don't know why we don't. A lot of the people in America that would call themselves Christians are probably false converts. Now this may not sound very kind, but let me throw some numbers out at you. If you take the number of people in the United States who declare themselves to be Christian, it usually hovers 70%. Now we have the, the fastest rising group is the nuns, and I don't mean the nuns who I had when I went to Catholic school. I mean the N-O-N-E-S, the people who say they have no religious affiliation. But, but let's just use the number 65, 70%. A few centuries, a few decades ago would be 75, 80%. But let's just say, let's just say a couple things that we want to discuss would define a Christian. You attend church regularly. You pray daily. You read your Bible fairly often, several times a week, maybe even every day. You volunteer time at your church and maybe in a community or something like that to try and help let other people hear the good news. You donate money for the furtherance of the gospel. You try to live a moral life with God's help. You could probably add a few different things uh, to the list. Let's put church attendance. You attend three or more times a, week, a month. So let's just use that as the criteria. 
Now we're down from about 70%. Are you sitting there? Put your seatbelts on. To about 7 to 11%. That tells us that there's a lot of false converts in the church. You say, Pastor Jim, that's legalism. You're judging by what we do. Okay. Let's say that I told you that I'm married. Actually, in two weeks from tonight, I'll be married 31 years. And I say to you, but I never see my wife. Would you say I love her? And you'd say, it doesn't sound like you do. I don't care to see her. It doesn't sound like you do. But I have a marriage certificate. I'm wearing a wedding ring. I would say that I'm not telling the truth. And so those things are just telling us, really, they're indicators of where our faith is. And we don't talk about false converts enough. People who walk forward in a, and just say, well, I invited Jesus into my heart, and then I left and went, and out, went out and lived like the devil. But the man on the altar said, if I do that, I'm good. Or I, I did this sacrament or something like that. He's, James is going to show us a lot of that stuff doesn't really mean anything. In other words, Abraham, James is saying that Abraham proved his faith was real. He proved that he had really trusted God by his radical obedience to the word of the Lord. Maybe think of it this way. The grace of God, we are saved by the grace of God through faith. It doesn't come from good works. Good works come out of the grace of God. The grace of God produces a productive faith. So in the Old Testament, faith was proved genuine by the facts. If somebody lived, had correct conduct, we would say that they are a person of faith. And Jesus' teaching was very, very similar. I think of the Sermon on the Mount. You read this stuff and you're like, oh my goodness, who who could ever live like that? So when you talk about the Apostle Paul and James, there's no contradiction. The Apostle Paul emphasizes how we get into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And James is emphasizing what it looks like. What a real convert looks like. What somebody who has really entered into a relationship with God actually looks like. James was, is pointing out to us that Abraham's faith was not just in his head. It wasn't just that he was a church attender. But his trust in the Lord was actually actively lived out. Now, you might be like, I'm not so sure I'm with you on this. Or I'm not so sure I agree. Well, let me challenge you on this. If James actually thought that Abraham was saved by works, why in the world did he quote Genesis 15, 6, which says the exact opposite? It says he believed God, and that's why God credited him as being righteous. Now, verse 22 says that faith was working together with his works, or faith was active with his works. What is James saying? The two are inseparable. Faith and works are inseparable. Now, let's just talk about Abraham. Abraham was a pagan who like the demons do, came to believe in one God 
And some people would say, well, it ends there. That's all you need to do. You just need to believe that there's one God like Abraham did, and that's it. Many people today will tell you, just believe, and that's it. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was a big pothead. And so then I stopped doing that, and people would say to me, well, if I come to trust in Jesus, do I have to stop doing drugs? And I would say, just believe, man, just believe. Now I go, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. And God, God will help you. Hopefully, there will be a love in your heart that will make that less appealing to you. James is saying, no, 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 no. Not just believe and that's it. He's saying it goes a lot farther than that. It goes a lot deeper than that. James' point is this, that faith produces action, or better yet, that Abraham's faith was constantly at work in his deeds. Let's repeat that. That Abraham's faith was constantly at work and could be seen in his deeds. This is part of what we call sanctification. Salvation, you come to believe. Salve, uh, salvation, you come to believe. Sanctification is we are becoming the process, the daily process that God uses to make us more like Jesus Christ. So this is what he's talking about here. James is talking about faith working itself out in daily life with the aim of producing Christ-likeness and a daily obedience to God. Now, look at how James ends verse 22 with asking us, don't you see by works faith was made perfect? Don't you see it? Can't you see it? That his, his, by faith, by works, his faith was made complete? He's saying, don't you see by Abraham being willing to give God his own son, he demonstrates his trust. He demonstrates his faith is growing. He demonstrates he's being sanctified. He is becoming more like the Holy One. He's saying, don't you see that faith and works must mix together? There is no other way to be made complete. But here's what we have to remember. Huge. This is huge. Just because they must mix together faith and works, faith and deeds, does not mean they are equal. Please understand that. Faith is 100% necessary for eternal life and works help your faith grow. However, there are plenty of people doing great works in this world. I know everybody thinks that everything is going horrible in this world, and this year things are not really so great. But you know what? Honestly, there's a lot of great stuff going on in this world. The amount of people on that are considered to be poverty by world standards, not by American standards, is so much less than it was 20 or 30 years ago. You can get health care in some of the poorest parts of the world right now that you could get in our country only 30 or 40 years ago. 
There's, there's, there's people talking about, oh, we need to get clean water. And yes, there's parts of the world that does not have clean water. But man, there's so many parts that do. I think it's some, some crazy number, like, like 100 years ago, 90% of the world lived in sheer poverty, and it's only like 10% now. That's 10% too many. But there's a lot of good stuff going on. But those good works are not going to get you, the Apostle Paul teaches us, to heaven because we're not holy like God is. And so we need faith to get us there. And so Abraham was maturing in his faith, and the more we trust and obey the Lord, the more we mature and the deeper we get to know the Lord. And that's God's vision for you. Did you know that? That's God's vision for me, that like Christ, we would be trusting our Heavenly Father all the way even unto death. Now in verse 23, James cites Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, that was probably about 30 years earlier than he asked God to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac hasn't even been born yet when Genesis 15, 6, that took place. And he says, and the scripture was fulfilled. That's how he, he opens verse 23. Now, do I believe that Genesis 15 was a prophecy of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22? I do not. I don't. God told him he was, he was going to have a son, and, God, and he believed God. No, no, the scripture was fulfilled in the sense, when he says it here in verse, James says it, in the sense that Abraham's faith was vindicated, that Abraham's faith was proved real in Genesis 22 when he went to sacrifice Isaac. So the reality of verse 22, faith and works working together are seen in the life of the true people of God. But this is where we have to be careful. And this is where, you know, I, I know sometimes we're afraid to talk to people about Jesus because there's a few people out there. There's not many of them anymore. <laughs> They're mainly internet trolls that, that are, are serious Bible contradiction police. And a lot of times we're afraid to open our mouth. And, but there's not many people who are going to be able to really, you know, debate Bible with you if you're studying the Bible regularly like we do here at Calvary Chapel. Um, I usually tell people, they're like, I don't know what to say. I usually just say, just open your mouth and watch what God has come pouring out of your mouth. Because remember, what we pour into our hearts and our minds, which we're doing every time we open up God's Word, God will bring it out when we need it. We might get a little tongue-tied or think we're getting tongue-tied. For, for example, I'll be honest with you. Every Sunday when I get up and speak, Wednesdays are a little more casual, but every Sunday when I get up and speak, I swear that somebody took a, 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 you know, a nail gun or a thumbtack gun and thumbtacked my tongue to the roof of my mouth. I feel like it's... I feel that's how I sound. 
And people are like, oh, that was so clear. That was so simple. I, like, I understood it. I could see it all. And I'm thinking to myself, God, are you like intercepting the words or, or what's the deal? I, I feel like every word is really struggling to, to come out of me. And so when you open your mouth, God will begin to speak. So we want to be careful here because someone who knows a little bit about the Bible and most people won't. I'm going to talk a little bit about how most people actually believe James to be the book of the Bible. But, but, but a lot of people will say, well, I know that the Apostle Paul taught differently. If you want the references, Galatians 3 and Romans 4. And so, when, because he quotes the same verse, Genesis 15, 6, and where the Apostle Paul is saying that God in that moment when he considered him righteousness or accounted him as righteous, righteous, that he gave Abraham something that he didn't have or something that he didn't deserve. The Apostle Paul used those texts to prove from Genesis that God gave Abraham his righteousness or it's called imputed or given righteousness, imputed righteousness, which is what? a right standing before God okay, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. That's true. James is talking about Genesis 15, 6 in relation to Genesis 22 when he went to sacrifice Isaac. Paul is talking about how you come into a right standing with God James is talking about the outworking and proof of a right standing with God. Stick with me here. A big part of understanding this is the word fulfilled. He says the scripture was fulfilled, which in Old Testament thinking means to bring to, we think it, we always think of it as prophecy coming to pass, but Maybe we need to think of just a little differently, meaning that the Old in Old Testament thinking, fulfilled means to bring something to its goal or to bring something to its significance. So James is saying, Abraham's righteousness, Genesis 15, which came before circumcision, which we'll get to next month in our weekend studies, We, we, we talk about Abraham's righteousness coming before circumcision and before he was told to sacrifice Isaac. And he's saying to us that in those events of obedience, you could actually see his righteousness. Some of you this is one thing I love about Calvary Chapel. I, I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. I, I, you know, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor because I kind of fit in in a weird way. You know, I, I, I became a follower of Jesus at a church where there was a lot of church people. Loved them. They taught me a ton. They taught me a ton. And then I went to a couple other churches after that where there was a lot of, a lot of church people and loved them. They loved me, taught me a ton, taught me a ton. But when I went to Calvary Chapel, I walked in and 
Um, you know, people were wearing sneakers and shorts and t-shirts, and which some people would think was disrespectful. But can I be honest with you? I felt totally at home. <laughs> I felt totally at home. And, um, and there was a lot of people there who used to do a lot of drugs and alcohol. And we have a lot of people in our church like that. They, they are like, you know, I used to do a lot of that stuff. I don't know anymore. I read the Bible now. I'm not carousing like I used to. Um, I'm serving. I'm, you know, donating money. I'm telling people about Jesus I work with. They're like, am I Christian, Pastor Jim? I'm like, I think you might be, man. It's so cool, right? Um, and so sometimes if you come from that background, the way you are now people get a little weirded out or a lot weirded out. You know what that is? They see your righteousness. You don't even have to say anything. They just see it. And so the Apostle Paul uses, again, Genesis 15, 6, for the purpose of timing, faith comes first. James isn't using it for timing. He's using it for sanctification. He's using it for saying, this did happen in the past, but now we can see what's going on now. James is showing us through Abraham what active faith looks like, the kind of faith that demonstrates the righteousness of God that has been given to someone. The Spirit being made alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Genesis 22, 11 and 12, which he's talking about here, says this, But the angel of the Lord, we know that to be Jesus, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything for him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, the angel of the Lord just called himself God. James concludes verse 23 and says he was called, about Abraham, he was called the friend of God. What does it mean to be the friend of God? It means like, oh yeah, me and God, we're, we're, we're buddies, we're tight. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. It means to be a friend of God that you live in a right relationship with God. So you say, I, I, I am right. I, I, I trusted in Jesus. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I say. Hmm, what does he mean? What is he trying to say? I think Jesus is trying to say, you are my friends if you do what I say. But no, Jesus, but I trusted you. I don't got to do what you say. Yes, you do. I will help you, Jesus says. But we have to try. But Abraham was not God's friend because he obeyed. He was God's friend because he acted as a friend should act. That proves that we're friends with God, that we're right with God as we act like people, not perfectly, but the general trajectory of our life and generally our life. If people were to follow us around, People would just say, that guy's just a goody two-shoes. 
When I was young, that was like the kiss of death. Now it's a badge of honor for me. Abraham acted like a friend should act, proving he was God's friend. For example, when God was going to discipline Sodom and Gomorrah, he conferred with Abraham. He trusted Abraham. Abraham was a confidant of God's. I think that's why betrayal hurts so much. When people who pretend to be your friend are not, and they violate that trust. But God says, no, that guy, that guy's my friend. I can trust Abraham. And we see he makes lots of mistakes. But in the end, he always comes back to God. And he comes back quickly. So verse 24 gives us another conclusion, summary statement. Um, and this is another verse with huge disagreement. I'll tell you this, huge disagreement always happens when context is ignored. Remember, loved ones, context is king. If you don't get the context right, you're going to get the whole thing right. That's why if you have one of those Bibles, I've said this a thousand times, I'll say it 2,000 more if God gives me breath. If you have a study Bible or you have one of those Bibles that has a little synopsis of what's going on in the book of the Bible before you read it, read it. It will make everything unfold. Some people say to me, you know, when you teach us the Bible, a lot of times it just, it just unfolds the way you set it up at the beginning and then it just unfolds to us. And the reason for that is reading, study, culture, history, context. Context makes things a lot easier to understand. So we know the context. The Apostle Paul talks to people about how to come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You put your trust in him. James is talking about sanctification. Paul's talking about salvation. James is talking about sanctification. What does a saving relationship with Jesus actually look like? What does a true conversion look like? Verse 24, he says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, some versions say, not by faith alone. Remember, James is talking about false faith. He's telling the people who say, I trusted Jesus, that's all I need to do, I'm good. He's saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. So let's review. James is teaching there's evidence of saving faith. What are they? Good works good deeds, character, are all proof that your faith is not superficial. Clearly, we saw in chapter 1 the faith of some self-proclaimed Christians that James was writing to produced no spiritual fruit. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. James is saying these guys have no spiritual fruit. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, was writing to people a lot like people that we know who thought, you know what? I'm a good person. Why wouldn't God take me into heaven? You know? I'm not, I'm not some psycho killer. 
Like, really? You're really setting the, high bar, the bar really high with that one. Both apostles clearly teach that good works are the byproduct of genuine faith, of a true and real conversion by the Holy Spirit. Here, James is pointing to false faith, saying if there is no, fa- if there is no fruit, if there's no evidence of your faith, then your faith is false and you're not right with God. Say the Apostle Paul would never say anything like that. Well, Galatians 5, 6, we read it before. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. We also talked about last week, Ephesians 2.10, after talking to us about we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. We can't boast. He then says we're saved unto good works. In Ephesians 2.10, both agree that people's actions prove the reality of the inward transformation that's done by God, not by us. Now, there's something else important here. We don't have time to go there because we'll be here till, uh, well, Christmas. If you don't want to cook for Thanksgiving, just stick around. But, uh, but in Romans 3.28, the Apostle Paul says we're justified by faith. But here, James says, We're not justified by faith alone. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he says we're justified by faith, he's talking about real faith. When James says we're not justified by faith alone, James is talking about faith that he's already called dead, that he's already called useless. It's entirely possible, I don't know, but I was thinking through this, it's entirely possible that James is actually offering a corrective. He's not correcting the Apostle Paul. He's correcting people who misinterpret the Apostle Paul. The people who say you can just believe in Jesus and it doesn't matter how you live. Friends, we are surrounded by them. We are surrounded by them. People who say they've put their trust in Jesus and live the exact opposite way. They are all around us. There's way more of them than there are true converts. Once again, it's important in context that James' use of the word faith is not carrying the same meaning as the Apostle Paul is. James is challenging their faith. The Apostle Paul is talking about what we call union with Christ. Union with Christ is we are in Christ. We are one with Him. We are empowered by the, we are, the Holy Spirit is in us, and He empowers us to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus. James is talking to people who claim to have faith but are not in union with Christ. They haven't been born again. Their spirit has not been made alive. Now you say, oh, but Pastor Jim, Pastor Jim, they say they trust Jesus. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here. Two things. Someone says they trust Jesus, but they completely live like they don't. 
Did you know that many of today's most prominent atheists grew up at the, in the church and at one point in time said they had put their trust in Jesus? Did you know that? And I'm really not trying to be a smart aleck here. But you know you could teach a parrot to say I put my trust in Jesus. I won't imitate that for you because I don't want to be disrespectful. But anybody can say they put their trust in Jesus. The Apostle Paul teaches faith is how we get into a relationship with God. But that, like James, is just the beginning of true faith. Now, he said this to the Philippian church, written to a collective group of church, but we can apply it individually. Philippians 1, 6, he says, being confident of this very good thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, who's that? That's the Apostle Paul, talking about the good work that's begun in you, will complete it. What's that? There's James. There's James right there. Will complete it, sanctification, until the day of Jesus Christ. So now we talked a little bit about it's important to understand this stuff for the holidays uh, before we began the message tonight. Uh, so, so what about the people you know? I want to I just quickly outline, and we probably should have put it up on the screen. You might want to jot them down or mark the minute mark in the message for something like that if you don't have a pen. But um, you might want to consider the primary ways, I want to say ways, that's a bad word, the primary views that people have of how you get to heaven. Let's narrow it down to four. View number one, good works. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And that's all I need. God's going to, God forgives everybody in the end. Well, just about everybody, you know, except the really bad guys. He's going to take me to heaven that's what we might call the secular view. It's really funny. People don't want to believe in Jesus, but they don't want to go to hell. Funny thing, that's the way it goes, right? The Apostle Paul would say, Apostle James would go, no way, no way, not going to happen. The second view is a very, very popular view, getting less popular now as this group of nuns is, is growing, but a very popular view in the Northeast and the area in which we live is faith plus works will earn you salvation. So the other people say, I'm a good person, view number one. This view says faith plus being a good person. If you have both, you add them together, Face plus, and this is really the Roman Catholic view. And it's the belief held by many people. Now, I, I was raised Roman Catholic. I have no axe to grind with it. But when people tell me that's how you get to heaven, I will say this. Same thing I will say to the first view. Okay, faith uh, or good person or faith plus being a good person. Can you please explain to me why God had to have his son bludgeoned on a cross? Can you please explain that to me? I've yet to have anyone give me a really good answer. And I've talked with clergy about it and been unable to get a good answer. And I don't mean low church Calvary Chapel clergy. <laughs> View number three, faith results in salvation. 
Now, I would say that probably many or most followers of Jesus believe this. The problem we have to be careful of in this one is Jesus is Savior, but he's not Lord. So a lot of people would say that they have faith, but they're not seeking to do what Jesus says. The fourth view would say this, that faith results in salvation and good works. There's no mix of it. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. That faith is a separate entity, and, and the result of saving faith, you can debate when God gives that to you. That's another debate for another day. That's Hebrews 6 is actually part of that. But, but faith results in salvation and good works of love and mercy. So we would say in this case, it, we're saved by faith alone, but real faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but real faith is never alone because it results in not only salvation, but also living for God. That would be the view that I would take. Now, from the example of the patriarch Abraham, the great patriarch, I can't be like that guy. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's go to a prostitute. He says, verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot, some versions say prostitute, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So Rahab's faith, if you, what, what happened? Joshua came into the promised land and he was going to, he was, wanted to scope, had, he sent spies in, in Joshua 2 to scope out Jericho. And Rahab's faith was shown in risking her life to save the spies. Now, does James approve of her being a harlot and a prostitute? No, he does not. Does he approve of her, approve of her faith that resulted in salvation and good works? Yes. Yes, her faith in God resulted in salvation and good works. Now, Rahab told the spies that she believed in God, in Yahweh, because she had heard about him. She's like, I heard how you guys rolled over everybody. And, and, and we knew that your God was fighting for you. We looked at the battles and we're like, no way those guys could win that one. And so she heard about God and believed. Abraham heard from God and both of them were converted from pagans to the living God. Now, when you take the opposite ends of the spectrum, great father Abraham and Rahab the harlot, that's an illustration to us that anyone can be converted to Christ. Anyone, and anyone can give all they have, can give their whole life to Jesus Christ. The comparison between Abraham and Rahab leaves all of us without excuse that all followers of Jesus need to have transformed lives. 
Abraham offered his only son to God, the most precious thing he had on earth. He offered it to God. Rahab opened up her home and risked her own life for the kingdom of God. She proves that real faith works. I mean, think about it. The spies come to her. If they're like, well, we're spies. Well, if she just said, well, you know what? I have faith, but I can't help you. That would have saved no one. But her acting on her faith resulted in those guys being saved. How famous is she? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 has her in the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. So chapter 2 concludes where we began tonight in verse 20, the central point, verse 26, he says, For as the body without the spirit is dead. So, so you have the body, you have the spirit. If they're separated, what are they? They are a corpse. They're a corpse. You know, I, 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 being a pastor, you go to a disproportionate amount of funerals. I, and I usually stand up in the front and I hear people say, oh, he looks great. And I think to myself, no, that's my friend. He ain't there. That's his shell. That's his earthly tent. He is out of his tent. He is now in glory. He is not feeling any of that. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so, without, so faith without works is dead also. What is he saying? Faith and works are inseparable, like the body and the spirit. He makes it sound so natural, doesn't he? It's such a graphic illustration. He's like, faith without works is not faith at all. It's dead. It's a meaningless profession. Saving faith is very active. It is deeply entrenched in God. You know, as a... As a and, and not only is it deeply entrenched in God, it's willing to help other people. It's willing to help the kingdom out of being deeply entrenched in God. i got to be honest with you. That's why as a pastor... I hate asking for volunteers for stuff. I hate it. I hate it. I, I hate asking for servants. I hate, I hate mentioning money. I hate, you know, telling people, bust your table in the cafe, man. Come on. Because that should just be part of who we are. All of that should just be part of who we are. True faith changes who we are. True faith changes our hearts. True faith changes our desires. True faith changes our actions because true faith makes us a new creation in Christ. Faith that doesn't change us Faith that doesn't change who we are and is moving us towards who we are becoming. Faith that doesn't give us the heart of God, James says, is dead. It's non-existent. He, James is teaching us so, such so-called faith is worthless. It's a corpse. 
and it will actually hinder other people coming to faith. Now, some people right now, if you're still with me, you're like, not me, man. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm good. I know Bible verses. I've been baptized. I know I'm too busy for God right now for the past, you know, couple years, but, but I'm still a Christian. While the Apostle Paul primarily ministered to pagan people, James is talking to church people. He's talking to you and me, and he's asking us this. When you talk like that, do you really think that your life evidence is saving faith? If people followed you around, could they really, really see that there's something different about you? In James 2.14, which began this section, he said this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Today, James, today, last week and this week, James has clearly answered us, no. That's false faith. And it can't. James' examples are powerful. Like Abraham, God the Father offered his only son as a sacrifice for sins. Remember, God stopped Abraham from offering Isaac. But he didn't stop it with Jesus. He let Jesus go all the way to the cross to leave nothing on the field. To lay down his life. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Abraham held nothing back from God. Nothing. He said, I want you to take the thing that matters most to you in this world. The thing that you love more than anything else. And I want you to give it to me. I don't want you to hold it back from me. And God the Father, by allowing Jesus to go to the cross. And Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Hold nothing back from you. And hold nothing back from me. And tonight... Jesus calls you and me to hold nothing back from him. So we get to heaven by turning to God, the same God who would give us his one and only beloved son who died on the cross in our place for our sins and rose from the dead. And like Rahab, Jesus risked his own life he risked his own life for others. She risked her own life for those spies. For, his, for God's people. And Jesus risked his life for his people on the cross to invite them into his home to hide under the shadow of his wings. So we get to heaven by trusting Jesus. That's faith. By believing, by trusting in him. And then we go out and we live our lives by holding nothing back from Jesus because Jesus didn't hold anything back from you. Well, let's pray.